You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Barbaric. Let that word resound from hill to hill and from mountain to mountain, from valley to valley across this broad land. Barbaric, barbaric. May God help those poor souls. Who'd be so cruel? Barbaric. Hear me! Barbaric! My name is Robert C. Byrd. I am a United States Senator, and I am an American. This is my Constitution. This is our Constitution, and this is how it begins. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I can listen to that guy talk all day long. <laughs> Robert Byrd, the longest serving legislator in all of American history. When you combine his time in the United States House and his time in the U.S. Senate, and he could get on the floor and talk about, like in the opening, dogfighting. Before you knew it, he would be quoting Aristotle, Socrates, and whoever. He studied all those great you know, history from, from Greece and Rome and wrote really the unofficial history of the United States Senate, using that as a background for a lot of those, for those books that he wrote. Uh, he is a guy that held every conceivable leadership position and was the Senate minority majority leader uh, at various times when I was a teenager while Bob Dole and Howard Baker were our majority leaders in the, on the Republican side. And so I grew to admire Robert Byrd, even if I didn't agree with him very often. But Byrd is a, is a fascinating guy. He took home to West Virginia a ton of money, and he was a leader who was willing to, to reach across that aisle and, and work real hard with Bob Dole. And, you know, Bob Dole talked about, in his final speech, about dealing with Robert Byrd. I've learned a lot from people in this room. I've even gone to Senator Byrd when I was the majority leader to ask his advice on how to defeat him on an issue. <laughs> and if you know Robert Byrd as I do, he gave me the answer. <laughs> but it wasn't easy. I mean, this man's determined. And I know that in his book, and his great works about the Senate, in the first book, when I became the majority leader, he very candidly writes in his book, he had his doubts about this Bob Dole, because I might be too partisan, or I might not work with a minority leader. But as I've heard him say a number of times since, I demonstrated that I wasn't that partisan, and B, that I understood, if I understood one thing, as my successor will understand, is that unless the two leaders are working together, nothing's going to happen in this place. 
We have to trust each other, as Senator Daschle and I have, as Senator Mitchell and I have, as Senator Byrd and I have, and I had also great respect for Senator Mansfield, Senator Baker, though I didn't have the privilege of, I wasn't in the leadership at that time. And I would say to all those who've been in the leadership positions, it's a difficult life. And after two o'clock today, when somebody calls me about bringing up their amendment, I'll say, sorry with me. farewell to my friend and long-standing colleague, the able senator from Kansas, the Senate Majority Leader, Bob Dole. Bob Dole has responded to the call of duty throughout all of his life, and we are all the richer for his dedication and his work. His life and his service have made a difference. American politics is a rough and tumble occupation, and we in this chamber are all too familiar with the savagery, the criticism, the, the negativity that has so infected political life in our day. But there are times when politics must be put aside and the honest, heartfelt contributions that we each and all make as servants of the people must be acknowledged. I congratulate the majority leader on his long and distinguished service in the Senate and before that, in the House of Representatives, and before that, in the Kansas legislature to which he was elected at the young age of 26. As one of his fellow Americans, I thank him for his service and his bravery during World War II. And it has been a privilege and has been a pleasure to work with Senator Dole in the leadership positions given to both of us by our colleagues. First, when he was majority leader and I was minority leader. And then when our roles were reversed. Senator Dole and I are the only floor leaders in Senate history to move from majority leader to minority leader, and then back again to majority leader. I guess it is a classic case of what comes around goes around. <coughs> or what goes around comes around. Often I have pondered this turning of the Senate wheel, a continuing rotation of individuals of different temperaments and talents, of opposing beliefs and varied backgrounds. I have been honored to serve in the Congress of the United States for almost 44 years. I have witnessed the comings and I have witnessed the goings of many fine men and women. Some were extraordinary leaders, like Joe Martin of Massachusetts, Sam Rayburn of Texas, Lyndon Johnson of Texas, Everett Dirksen of Illinois, Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, and Howard Baker of Tennessee, and Mike Mansfield of Montana, who served as majority leader for 16 years. Many made outstanding contributions to their country and were considered irreplaceable in their time. 
And yet our brief appearance upon the Senate stage is only temporary. It is applauded, remarked upon, and then forgotten, washed away like footprints in the sand by the next turn of the wheel, the next wave of events. But through it all, the Senate endures and goes on like Tennyson's Brook forever. It is far, far greater than the sum of its 100 parts. Senator Dole in his four terms in the House and five in the Senate has been a serious and successful legislator. He was the 1,645th person to have taken the oath of United States Senator. He has served as leader of his party in the Senate longer than any other Republican. 10 years, 11 months, and 20 days today. Bob Dole has served longer as a Republican in Congress. 35 years, 5 months, and 8 days than any other current member of the Senate and House. Additionally, he is the only Kansas senator to have chaired the Senate Finance Committee. He has earned the respect of his colleagues. He has been a hands-on leader, often working personally with other senators and staff to craft legislative compromises and solutions to difficult national questions. As Republican leader, both when he served as majority leader and as minority leader, he was always available to work on solutions to problems of both a national and international nature. He gave his time, including the hours spent away from the chamber and the hill, to wrestling with those solutions. And I have fond memories of the time that we worked together in the 100th Congress, when I served as majority leader and he was the minority leader. And we succeeded in crafting important legislation, including the landmark Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act of 1988. Together, we developed a new trade tool for the United States called the Super 301 Law, which required annual reviews of foreign trade practices, the identification of priority foreign country practices against American products, and the triggering of automatic investigations against such countries' practices. Senator Dole has been particularly attentive and active in the foreign policy and national security areas. While we have not always agreed on specific policies, he has been a major contributor to our nation's policies regarding the Soviet Union before its collapse, arms control, Bosnia, and the Gulf War with Iraq to name a few important examples. When he was majority leader in 1985 and I was minority leader, together we created the Arms Control Observer Group to monitor. The Senate will suspend till orders for game. And I thank the chair. Thank you. To monitor arms control negotiations and treaties with the Soviet Union. Together, we led a Senate delegation to the opening of U.S.-Soviet arms control negotiations in Geneva that year. We also traveled together at the request of President Reagan to Moscow to celebrate the historic exchange of instruments by Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev ratifying the INF Treaty. In the area of domestic policy, Senator Dole has been a long-time central figure on farm legislation. He has amassed an impressive record of service on behalf of the disabled and the handicapped. He has particularly advanced the cause of handicapped children. While I've enjoyed working together with Bob Dole, and sometimes have equally enjoyed 
working at odds with him on various issues, I am saddened that he is leaving the Senate. He will cast a long shadow as he goes. It isn't enough to say in our hearts that we like a man for his ways. It isn't enough that we fill our minds with psalms of silent praise. Nor is it enough that we honor a man as our confidence upward mounts, just going right up to the man himself and telling him so that counts. So when a man does a deed that you really admire, don't leave a kind word unsaid. For fear to do so will make him vain or cause him to lose his head. But reach out your hand and tell him well done. And see how his gratitude swells. It isn't the flowers we throw on the grave. It's the word to the living that tells. And so I say to my friend, Bob Doe, well done. The Democratic leaders recognize. You sit there and you look at that and you gotta ask yourself. Could you see Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer doing that today? These two men were very proud of the work that they did together, Bob Dole and Robert Byrd, and their ability to work together. Because as Bob Dole pointed out, the two leaders have to work together to get something done. And that's what we need to be seeing in Washington, D.C. today, that we're not leadership getting together and getting something done instead of fighting to the death. And that's all I hear the, the, my fellow Republicans and Democrats say but uh, again, I give one people, all or nothing can get you nothing. But let's take a look at Robert Byrd and the impact that he had on the United States of America as the longest serving political figure legislator in the history of the nation. Protecting the safety of our miners is a moral responsibility. Hear me. The Constitution is the instrument that provides for what that flag represents. Now, let me say that again. This Constitution that I hold in my hand is the instrument, there it is, that provides, yes, for what that flag represents. It is the Constitution that has been and continues to be the source, the source of our freedom. For the Constitution is not just a symbol. It is, as I say, the very thing itself. I still look out for West Virginia. I still zealously guard the welfare of this nation and its constitution. And I still work every day to move the business of this nation forward. I will continue to do this work until this old body just gives out and drops. Don't expect that to be anytime soon. Senator Robert Byrd, the longest-serving legislator in the history of the United States, has died. Elected nine times to the Senate, he had been in the middle of so many uh, historic debates, also had been in a Washington area hospital uh, since last week, suffering from dehydration. And Senator Byrd had a storied career, George, beginning with his election to the House in 1952. He became a senator six years later, and last November he broke the record for the longest-serving member of Congress. He held every major leadership position Incredible. in the United States Senate. He was also the Senate's unofficial historian. He actually studied uh, ancient Greek and Latin, so he'd write those histories uh, as well. As we said, he has been in frail health for some time now, yet he still made it to the Senate to vote for the health care reform bill in March, and in more than 50 years, he did make his mark on history, overcame controversy too, including that decision early in his career to join the Ku Klux Klan. John Carl covers the Senate for us, and John, that KKK membership was perhaps Senator Byrd's biggest regret. 
Oh, no question about that. He was only a member briefly, but it would be a permanent stain on his record, even, George, as he became one of the true giants of the Senate. The son of a coal miner, Robert Byrd grew up dirt poor. No electricity in his house, no running water either. Big as the elephant, stout as a mule. <laughs> he loved fiddling and he loved politics and was good at both. The country needs a leader in the White House. His tenure spanned the terms of 12 presidents. He wasn't afraid to battle any of them. Why is war being dealt with not as a last resort, but as a first resort? When President Bush asked Congress for authority to use force against Iraq in 2002, most Democratic senators supported the war, not Robert Byrd. What a shame! Fie upon the Congress. Fie upon some of the so-called leaders of the Congress. Byrd was a Senate man through and through, rising to the top ranks, majority leader, appropriations chairman, Senate pro tem, jealously guarding the Senate's rules and its power right until the end. I have to speak. And speak loudly. Can you hear me? Political battles are fleeting, he once said, but the Senate must stand forever. When Byrd first ran for office in the 1940s, he briefly joined the Ku Klux Klan, a stain on his record he'd forever regret. Over the years, he became a giant of the Senate, a giant of West Virginia politics, using his clout to funnel billions of federal dollars into his poverty-ridden state. For 69 of his years, Byrd was married to his high school sweetheart, Irma, who died in 2006. She was the guiding light for me. He's made Senate history and he's written it. Robert Byrd once vowed to serve, quote, until I no longer have any breath in me. And that he did. The flag over the Capitol is flying at half staff. And you can expect, Elizabeth, that this will be a day on Capitol Hill dominated by tributes to Senator Robert Byrd. Bishop, Reverend Clergy. Moan and Marjorie, the entire Bird family. If you didn't already know it, it's pretty clear the incredible esteem your father was held in. I know you've known that your whole life. To my fellow members of the Senate, you know, I uh, was telling the president when I got elected uh, the last time, and I had the great honor of running with the president. And, I was elected vice president and United States senator in the same day for my seventh term. And uh, in talking to, uh, and I got sworn in for that seventh term because we thought we might need a vote there uh, um, in those first uh, couple weeks. And uh, every time I sat with a leader, I never called Senator Byrd senator. I always called him leader. When I sat with a leader, I could see that look in his face and he said, Joe, you sure you're making the right decision giving up the Senate for vice president? <laughs> because as the senators know, he revered the Senate. As Danny Inoue uh, uh, said going into the chamber when we were going in to honor your father, yesterday we walked in together. He said, you know, Joe, had you stayed, you'd be number two. Uh, I'm still number two, Danny. <laughs> I'm still number two. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. President, I, uh, yesterday I had the opportunity uh, to pay my respects to Leader Byrd as he lay in repose in the Senate chamber. I met the family then and again today, and uh, the last time that happened was 50 years ago. The last time that uh, that chamber I revere served as a uh, resting place for anyone was uh, was 50 years ago. But uh, although I and my colleagues behind me revere the Senate, uh, Robert C. Byrd elevated the Senate. Other great men uh, and their families would have chosen for them to lay in state in the rotunda. But Bob Byrd, his family chose to lay in state 
in the Senate chamber. And to me, this is completely appropriate, having served with them for 36-plus years. For the Senate chamber was Robert C. Byrd's cathedral. The Senate chamber was his cathedral, and West Virginia was his heaven. And there's not a lot of hyperbole in that. Every person in the Senate, as my colleagues behind you can tell you, brings something special about them. I'll never forget having privately criticized a senator when I was there the first year. I was sitting with the previous leader, Senator Mansfield, who was an incredible guy. And he told me that uh, he said, why, why are you upset? And I told him about a particular senator railing against something I thought was very worthy, the Americans with Disability Act. And he went on to tell me that every member of the Senate represented something in the eyes of their state that was special and represented a piece of their state. Well, if there was ever a senator who was the embodiment of his state. There is ever a senator who, in fact, reflected his state. It was Robert C. Byrd. The fact of the matter is, the pick of the banjo, the, the banjo, the sweet sound of the fiddle, ramp dinners in the spring, country fairs in the summer, the beauty of the laurels in the mountains, the rush of the rapids through the valleys. These things not only describe West Virginia, but from an outsider's point of view, who's been here many times at the invitation of Jennings Randolph and Robert C. Byrd, it seems to me they define a way of life. It's more than just a state. And Robert C. Byrd was the fierce, most fierce defender of not only the state, but the way of life. I think the most fierce defender that probably this state has ever known in its history. You know, Robert Byrd did use the phrase, when I die, West Virginia will be written on my heart, and I used to kid him. I see you have so many Scotch-Irish down there, you don't acknowledge it was an Irish Catholic named Joyce who said that first. Reverend, he quoted everybody else. But when he used that phrase, he'd never acknowledge that it was James Joyce who said, when I die, Dublin will be written in my heart. And all he would do is laugh. The fact of the matter is, West Virginia was not only written in his heart, but he wore it on his sleeve. He took such pride in this place. He took such pride in all of you. I remember he asked me one of the few races he had. It was a race whether I'd come down because I was the young guy and I'd come down and demonstrate to everybody that I could not keep up with Robert C. Byrd, which happened to be true. And I was, I think, Nick, you were at the dinner. We had a, uh, a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner and down here, and uh, Robert C. Byrd did something never happened before with me and all the dinners I've spoken at. He stood up and he said, we're honored to have Senator Joe Biden from Delaware here tonight. And Joe, I'd like to introduce you to West Virginia. Then he spent, as Nick will remember, the next probably 10 minutes talking about everyone in the audience by name, where they were from, what they had done, how they had fought through difficulty. And then he said, kind of like Johnny Carson, here's Joe. Well, I thought it was pretty impressive, literally. Robert C. Byrd asked me to speak, but he knew the privilege was mine, not the people to whom I was speaking. He was devoted to all of you like few senators in the 37 years I was there, 36 plus years I was there that I have ever, ever known. He was fiercely devoted, as you've all heard, to his principles. 
even once he became power. He always spoke truth to power, standing up for the people he proudly was part of. And you've heard it many times a day, but it bears repeating again in defense of the Constitution he revered. I always wear a flag pin, but I was afraid he'd be looking down today because every time I'd wear the flag pin on the floor, he would grab me, take my pin, and put on a Constitution pin. That's the pin I'm wearing. So, boss, I'm wearing the pin. <laughs> Robert C. Byrd said many things, but he once said, as long as there is a form in which questions can be asked by men and women who do not stand in awe of a chief executive, and one can speak as long as one's feet will allow one to stand, the liberties of the American people will be secure. Eleven presidents knew Robert C. Byrd. He served, as he pointed out, concurrently with them, not under them. And eleven presidents, where they all here and two are here, can attest to the fact that he always showed respect, but never deference, and he stood in awe of none. He had an incredible, prodigious memory that I will not take the time to regale you about. I just remember one time sitting with the Queen of England at a, part, at a, at a formal dinner, and he recited the entire, the entire lineage of the Tudors, and every year each one had served. And she sat there, and I thought her bonnet was going to flip off her head. It was like... What did I just hear? She learned about relatives she probably forgot she had. As also noted, Robert C. Byrd was a parliamentary library, a keeper of the institution of the Senate, and he was the institution itself. But to me, and many people here today, like guys I see, Bill Bradley and Jim Sasser, who long left the Senate for greener pastures, and I hope, better remuneration. We used to kid about that too, but I, uh, for a lot of us, he was a friend, and he was a mentor, and he was a guide. Nick and I were talking a little bit earlier because Nick, uh, I commuted every day for 36 years in the United States Senate, 250 miles a day, and Robert C. Byrd was a stickler about when he said votes. And I'd drive down from Washington, and I'd call Nick on this old, big old car phone I first had. It was about that big. And I'd say, Nick, I can see the dome. Hold the vote. I can see the dome. Finally, Nick caught on. He said, Joe, or Mr. Uh, Senator, how far away can you see the dome? <laughs> because he'd be the go one, one to go to the leader and say, can you hold the vote two more minutes for Biden? As long as I was behaving, he held the vote. But when I found myself in disagreement, I'd stand there to catch a 7 o'clock train. He'd set a vote for 7 o'clock. And I'd walk up to him, and I'd say, I needed seven minutes from the chamber. And Nick knows this. I'd walk up to him, I'd stand. always stood down in the well, and he stood in that first riser. And I'd say, Mr. Leader, uh, I know there's no, we got an hour. I said, you set the vote for seven. Any possibility of setting a 10 to 7 so I could get the train? He'd go like this. He'd look at the clock, look at me, look at the clock, and say, no. No. But that's because I misbehaved once. I voted with George Mitchell on a matter relating to minors. And uh, that was a big mistake. <laughs> he literally took the roll call sheet. There's these sheets, as the staff members know, with every senator's name and how they voted. He took the roll call sheet, had it framed, had my name circled in red, and literally, literally, had it screwed to the ornate doorframe in his office then as the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. So every single, every single senator coming to see him would walk out, and at eye height, they'd see Biden circled in red, and though darn well, they better not vote against Robert C. Byrd ever. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. 
But then I got in his good graces. I tried to run for president. He said, I don't want any senators running for president. I said, well, I said, why, Mr. Leader? He said, because you never come back and vote when I need you. So I made a promise that no matter where I was, if he called me and said he needed my vote, I'd drop whatever I was doing and I'd come. And I kept the commitment, the only one I might add. That got me back in his good graces again. The point is that this is a man who uh, knew exactly what he was doing. After I was elected in 1972 as a 29-year-old kid, I was number 100 out of 100 in the Senate seniority. And Leader Byrd offered up, he was then the whip, he offered his office to me uh, to come down from Delaware so I could have a place to interview staff members. It was in his office, in the connection his secretary put through, that I received a call telling me that uh, about an accident which took the life of my wife and my daughter. And uh, when they were buried, we held a memorial service a couple of days later in Delaware where thousands of people showed up and it was a bone-chilling slate day of rain and uh, people couldn't get in the church. And uh, I never knew it initially, but Robert C. Byrd, and I think you may have driven him up, Nick, drove up on his own with Nick to that church. He stood outside for the better part of an hour in a driving rainstorm where the temperature was below 32. When my brother saw him and asked him to come in, he said no. He wouldn't displace anyone. He stayed there for the entire service. When the service was over, he got in his vehicle and he drove back, never attempting to be noticed, never seeking that to know, as my deceased wife used to say, the real measure of generosity is would you do it and no one ever knew you did it. Well, Robert C. Byrd did that. I was appreciative of what he did, but I quite frankly didn't understand until a couple years later, I was in his office, and behind his desk was a huge boot cast in bronze. It was Michael's boot. It was his grandson's boot. And all of a sudden, it came so crystal clear to me who this guy was. I'd known him, but I understood immediately what he was about. For him, it was all about family. It was not just Irma, his beloved wife of 69 years. It was not just his daughters, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of whom were in our prayers today. It was an awful lot of you. I'll bet if he were here, he could look out and name, name you, and tell you what your father or mother did for him, what your grandmother or grandfather did for him, and how you made such and such of yourself. Clearly in his own life, Robert Byrd suffered a lot of hardships. You all know the story, losing his mom, being raised and adopted by an aunt and uncle, growing up in a home without electricity or water, having to work at an early age. He had an incredible, incredible determination. One that I don't think any of my colleagues have ever witnessed, to be my guess. But you know, this man was, uh, it wasn't just that, as President Clinton pointed out, that at age 47, as a sitting congressman, he, or 45, he went and got a law degree. I don't know whether you know, you probably do, Mr. President. He got that law degree without having a college degree. And at age 77, he went to Marshall University and completed his work getting his college degree. Because to him, in my view, and I don't know, the family would tell you this, and to him, I think he felt there was something wrong with the fact that he got the law degree without graduating. He didn't need that undergraduate degree. But it was Bob Byrd, to quote John Stennis, plowing to the hedgerow and to the end of the row. 
The remarkable thing about him is the he traveled a hard path. He devoted his life, though, to making that path a little easier for those who followed. This is a guy who continued to taste and smell and feel the suffering of the people of his state. He tasted it. That's why it was so deeply ingrained in him. It wasn't just a moral obligation. This guy remembered. And he unapologetically has been pointed out did everything to improve the lives of the people of Delaware by stealing all the money from Delaware, Tennessee, Texas, California that he could possibly get. Remember, Governor, there were two campaigns ago he's getting beat up for trying to move. Was it two campaigns ago to have the FBI move down to, uh, down to West Virginia? And the national press was beating him up. And I was on the floor with him, and he just had getting ripped in a press conference about that. And he, you know how he used to grab you by the arm and walk you back? Walk me back, he said, Joe, I hope they keep throwing me in the briar patch. <laughs> but I tell you what, you West Virginians owe a lot of people in Delaware <laughs> for a lot of money we should have gotten and you got. I just want you to know that. So be nice to the rest of us. And by the way, if you doubt it, if you just drive here, you cross the Robert C. Byrd Drive, the Robert C. Appalachian Highway, the Robert C. Library Learning Center, the Robert C. Byrd Clinic, the Robert C. Federal Building in Charleston, and on and on and on. But ladies and gentlemen, of course, it's more than the name we're not going to forget. It's his courage. He died like he lived. He died like he lived his life. He never stopped fighting. How many people would have hung on as long as he did? How many people would have had the ability to get back out of that hospital bed and get in a wheelchair and come in and vote, vote for this? He never stopped thinking about his people and the things he cared about. Speaking several weeks ago, uh, this week, actually, uh, when uh, Robert Byrd said, quote, like Jefferson and Adams, I'm inspired to continue serving the land I love to the very best of my abilities for the whole of my, for the whole of my years. Well, he served the land he loved. He served the people he loved. He served the people who were in his blood. And because of that service, you have gained greatly. And with his loss, you're the first who will feel that loss. But it's not just West Virginia alone. It's all of us. I said to him, I said of him when I learned of his death, I was on an errand for the president in Cleveland. And I said, you know, to paraphrase the poet, we shall not see his like again. Had he been there, he would have said, Joe, that's Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 2. And the actual quote is, I shall not look upon his like again. Mr. Leader, we're not going to look upon your like again. I'm not going to ask God to bless you because he already has, and I know where you are. And may God bless your family. May God bless this state and this country, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. 
Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. American dream. Born poor in Patterson, he would rise to be a rich man, a founder of automatic data processing, ADP. Gives money to democratic causes, then runs for the U.S. Senate in 1982 against Millicent Fenwick and serves there 31 years with one brief interruption. Along the way, defeating Pete Dawkins, Chuck Hytian, Doug Forrester, Dick Zimmer, and Rob Andrews in a primary. Although he came out of the business world, in Washington he fought for generally liberal causes, gun control, environmental protection, transportation funding, and perhaps his signature accomplishments banning smoking on airplanes and raising the drinking age to 21. After three terms, he thought he was ready to retire. Serving New Jersey in the United States Senate has been the highlight of my life. I love this state. I love this job. And I cherish the trust that the people in New Jersey have put in me and the opportunity to accomplish things that affect their lives and their, their families. In the state Senate, which met briefly today, Senate President Sweeney called him a man who got things done. You know, whenever you get on an airplane and you don't smell cigarettes, you know, Senator Lautenberg's the one that did that. And when blood alcohol levels were reduced from 0.10 to 0.08, you know, Senator Lautenberg was a big part of that happening, too. The demise of Senator Bob Torricelli's career brought Lautenberg out of retirement in 2002. He became the longest-serving U.S. senator ever from New Jersey, a title that had belonged to Clifford Case. In 2010, he developed lymphoma but fought it successfully. Then this year experienced more health problems and had to be wheeled into a recent Senate hearing. In 1988, when James Carville managed his campaign, Pete Dawkins called him a swamp dog. Lautenberg seized on that, seemed to enjoy the connotation, and went on to swamp Dawkins. Those who knew him recalled him today as a proud man and a tough campaigner. For NJ Today, I'm Michael Aaron at the State House. Senator Frank Lautenberg. When I was in college, he might actually have been the most hated member of Congress. He, he was the guy that changed the drinking age from 18 to 21 in 1984. I got to college around 1989, so five years later, and we were always scrambling and figuring out how you were gonna go, you know, have a drink, um, which I don't condone you know, back in my bad behavior days. But uh, but in, in a lot of ways, Mr. Lautenberg was right um, about raising the drinking age because it did cut the deaths um, amongst young people in half. He was also um, the man who got smoking banned from airplanes and uh, was a fierce opponent of tobacco. But largely, he was a person whose views were totally opposite of mine. <laughs> so I, I didn't have a lot in common with Mr. Lautenberg, Senator Lautenberg, but I, I, I do understand that uh, he was a fighter, a guy that fought for what he believed in, and he believed in big government, and he believed in government that told you what to do, which is an anathema to me. But we've included him in all this because he bears the distinction of being the last of the World War II generation to serve in the United States Senate. Uh, with his passing, an era of bipartisanship of, and, and, uh, and working together to, to to solve problems sort of came to an end and it became a much more partisan difficult place uh, after that era ended. He was probably a, a little more of a partisan uh, than some of the others in his generation but uh, but he did have friends on the other side of the aisle and he was a, a guy that, uh, that people respected. He was a self-made millionaire and his impact was pretty large as you'll see in these two reviews of his time in the United States Senate. 
Finally tonight, the Senate lost one of its longest serving members and its last World War II veteran. Flags flew at half staff over the U.S. Capitol, honoring New Jersey Democratic Senator Frank Lautenberg, who died early today of pneumonia at a New York hospital. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Few people in the history of this institution have contributed as much to our nation and to the United States Senate as Frank Lautenberg. His success story is really what the American dream is all about. He is the last World War II veteran having served in the Senate. We don't have any World War II veterans anymore, Mr. President. His death is a great loss for this institution in many, many different ways. Lautenberg was a millionaire businessman, first elected to the Senate in 1982 at the age of 58. He's known for pushing through a 1989 law that banned smoking on most U.S. flights. And he was also the driving force behind a 1984 law that raised the national drinking age to 21. He discussed it that year on the NewsHour. Well, I don't think the Congress is going to back off. We see a movement in this country to abolish uh, drunk driving. Lautenberg left the Senate in 2000 after 18 years. But two years later, he came out of retirement as a last-minute replacement for scandal-ridden Senator Robert Torricelli, who pulled out just five weeks before Election Day. Lautenberg won easily and returned to the Senate at age 78. Four months ago, he announced he would retire a second time after his fifth term ended in 2015. He cast one of his final votes in April, appearing on the Senate floor in a wheelchair to support a gun control bill that ultimately failed. It's now up to New Jersey's Republican Governor Chris Christie to appoint a successor to fill out Lautenberg's term. I think the best way to describe Frank Lautenberg and the way he would probably want to be described to all of you today is as a fighter. So today is a sad day for the people of New Jersey. Frank Lautenberg was 89 years old. For more on the senator's legacy and who might replace him, we turn to Herb Jackson, Washington correspondent for New Jersey's Record newspaper. Welcome, Herb Jackson. Five terms, the oldest senator. What would he say his legacy was? Well, I mean, he did talk about his legacy when he announced he was going to retire. Um, environmental protection, uh, the domestic violence law that, rec that prohibits uh, abusers from getting handguns. Um, he fought for uh, mass transit. There's a train station in New Jersey named after him. Um, he was fighting very hard to get a new train tunnel under the Hudson River, and that was one of the things he and Governor Christie fought about. Uh, so he's, he's got a lot of different areas, but, you know, he's an old-school liberal. You know, he came up in that era. You know, he didn't think government was too big, and he thought that it was supposed to be there to help the weak and the poor. Dana, let's talk about the legacy that Lautenberg leaves behind, what will he uh, most be remembered for? A lot of legislative accomplishments, like you said, Jake, that actually affect people's lives. We talk a lot about inaction here. Well, he was somebody who did act. And let me just give our viewers some examples. Uh, when you get on a plane now and there is no smoke, it is because of legislation that Frank Lautenberg helped push. That is, he's the reason why there's no smoking on airplanes. Uh, with regard to tobacco, he was a fierce opponent of, of tobacco from early on, even when it was incredibly unpopular. Uh, he uh, helped to, again, make sure that there was no smoking. Uh, and alcohol is as well, he was mainly responsible for uh, helping to curb drunk driving by having a national standard blood, blood alcohol level of 0.08. And also he helped make sure that the drinking age was 21. So those are just some uh, parts of the law that he really helped push that, as I said, really do affect people's lives. Uh, with regard to how he is being remembered here today, Jake, uh, as is tradition, they have put a black drape over his desk in the Senate and flowers as well. There's a condolence book uh, in his office. Look, he is somebody who lived a very long and a very robust life, uh, but he also is somebody who stuck out here. I can say this as a point of personal privilege, as you, know, and you did too, walking around the halls here in Congress. He was always polite. He always had good humor, even when he clearly was not feeling well uh, in recent months. And even when he, we were talking about political issues that really got under his skin, like, for example, the idea that, uh, that the Newark mayor, Cory Booker, fellow Democrat announced that he was going to run against him, which eventually was helped Lautenberg decide that he was going to retire. Well, if there's a definition of redundant, I'm it.
By the way, Josh, I'm representing the Pope. <laughs> As Bonnie knows, Frank used to call me the only Catholic Jew he knew. I, uh... <laughs> to the grandchildren. There's not a one of us who knew Frank, and I knew him for over service of over 25 years. There's not a one of us who knew him, who didn't know all of you. <laughs> until I had grandchildren when I would try to match him and then he'd stop. <laughs> My wife says I'm the most obnoxious grandfather in the world. No, wrong. Frank was the most obnoxious. <laughs> I have, as a lot of my colleagues have, I've spoken at more eulogies than I like to remember. I advise you all, you've already all broken the rule I advise people to observe. Never make a good eulogy. You'll be asked again and again and again. <laughs> and by the way, Danielle, I knew Strom Thurmond so well, literally, I was asked to do, be, do his eulogy. I did his eulogy. <laughs> this is a lot easier. Uh, <laughs> but I want to tell you something. I knew Strom Thurmond well, and he would be proud of your, your, your recollection. He'd be proud the way you described it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> oh gosh, I'm about to get myself in trouble. <laughs> we, we spoke about two hours, and he wanted to know, he wanted my advice, should he run again? What in the hell do you say to Frank Loudberg when he says, should I run again? And even then, Frank was slowing a little bit, and he knew it. But I said, Frank, look, I, 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 I think you'll win again, you run again. Um, I think even Christie will vote for you. Uh, you Nobody, literally in history, has ridden Amtrak as much as me as a, as a conductor, no? <laughs> Over 8,000 round trips I have made, literally. 8,000 round trips between Washington and Wilmington. I never had a home or an apartment in 36 years in Wilmington. The conductors were like my family, as the Secret Service knows, because the worries the first time I got on Amtrak, Hillary had to be vice president. One of my good friends comes and said, Joey! And I thought he was going to get shot. You know, they grabbed my face, you know, like that. Um, but as they'll tell you, um, uh, they're still my buddies. And I took the train, as my colleagues know, every single day. I'd blow out of the Senate. I got it down to seven minutes to make it to the train. And I sometimes miss the train. One day, I'm breaking my neck to get to the train. I am sprinting. If you ever take Amtrak, just now ask anybody when you hit Washington Station to know Joe Biden. I guarantee you they'll tell you no, and they'll tell you a story about my trying to make the train. I am like those old commercials, running for the airplane, jumping over chairs. I'm carrying my bag, which seemed like my staff deliberately loaded down with weights to slow me down. And I swear to God, true story, I get up, conductor says, hey, hey, Joe, 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 hold up, don't worry, you're okay, we're holding it for Lautenberg. <laughs> we're holding it for Lautenberg. In all those years, I never once asked them to hold a train for me.
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.